subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Cliff. Bobo. Sorry I'm late. It's all right, Bobes. I love you. I know who you are. It's no big deal. No, I mean, I was ready. It's just I got a call five minutes before we were going on, asked me to identify a picture of a skull. It didn't look like a Bigfoot skull. It had way pronounced canines, um, but it was an odd shape, so I was just following up on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, that skull has, was going around a little bit today. Um, you, you were, you were kind enough to send me a picture of that skull a little while ago and we compared it. I got that same picture from one of our museum members, um, this morning because here at the museum, we're lucky enough to have a man named Nico Spafadora on staff. Um, he's kind of a bone expert. He's, uh, um, he, he has a, his own business called the fossil team where he does, um, education on paleontology and bones and extinct animals of various sorts. His thing, he loves dinosaurs, you know, but he's really into anything like that. He, he's an expert kind of in on dinosaurs and extinct mammals. And yeah, he's a great member of the museum staff because we get pictures of bones and skulls all the time. And, um, I just show it to him and it, it doesn't take him very long to identify anything. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can totally see why you might've looked at that picture a little, little ways. So oh, what a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. The fossil team is his gig. And, um, yeah, uh, he, he's just, just a great addition to the team. Um, and he immediately, of course, identified that skull as a domestic dog. Was it a bull master? He suggested some sort of bulldog spinoff, like a boxer or something, um, like a, a rather large one though, because it, it is a weird looking skull because you don't see the snout on there. Right. Yeah, I can totally see how that how that has people going at this point. But yeah, it's just, it's just a dog, unfortunately. It's just a domestic dog. So, but that's all right. It's just another day in Bigfoot where something is not a Bigfoot, right? Right. <laughs> Do you have anything up your sleeve? Anything fun going on, Bobes? You want to share? Nothing fun. Just going through back taxes right now. Oh God, jeez, better you than me, man. I'm looking forward to taxes at this point. It's still not good. <laughs> yeah, because you know what I, I've learned by opening a business is that I, I'm not a good businessman. I'm just a good man. It only gets you so far. You're a pretty good businessman, Cliff. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 being an elementary school teacher taught me most things I need to know in life. You know, it taught me how to communicate concisely, um, to you know, which is a TV skill, of course, and be enthusiastic and you know, smile a lot even when you don't feel like it. Um, but it also taught me how to be organized and the importance of due dates and you know, all that sort of stuff, um, which helps a lot for tax time. Oh yeah. But, you know, um, here at the museum, we have something interesting going. Um, I don't know when this is going to air. I guess probably in the next couple of weeks, I guess. But, uh, you know, there's Squatch Fest at the end of the month here in um, the Pacific Northwest. As a Squatch Fest, if it, for people who don't know, is a great Bigfoot conference. It's just it's just wonderful. It's, it's great. It's up in Longview, Kelso, Washington. And it's, it's usually held on the last weekend of uh, every January because there's really nothing happening in January. So they try to bring in tourism and stuff, and they have that sort of thing going. But um, yeah, I'll be speaking there, and Dr. Meldrum will be there. Uh, Ron Moorhead will be there. Uh, Shane Corson from the Olympic Project. Omicron's going to be there. Yeah, I imagine the var- all the variants are going to be there in full force. So, you might want to wear your masks. 
<laughs> yeah, but uh, um, uh, but yeah. So I've got a little bit of insight about what's going to be happening up there at this moment. We're also having Dr. Jeff Meldrum at the uh, NABC um, right before that event on Thursday night. Jeff is going to be at the NABC for an after hours event. Um, I'm sure by the time this is out there for people to listen to, it'll be sold out. But as of right now, um, I think we have about four or five tickets left. That's going to be cool. Yeah, we, we, it's only 35 people. So um, it's nice and safe pretty much for social distancing and all that stuff. And it's always a pleasure to have Jeff at the museum, of course, too. So, But um, because of that, we're, uh, we're opening up a, a new section in the museum. And maybe, maybe it'll be open by the time this airs, actually, which would be really nice. We're finally getting that last little uh, that room open. It's about 8 feet by about 16 feet, which will allow us to put in another dozen or so displays. We have a number of stuff coming up about uh, hominoids in other parts of the world. We have a really cool uh, hair sample that might be Sasquatch that meets Dr. Henner Fehrenbach's golden golden standards, so to speak. Um, yeah, we're going to have some nest stuff from the Olympic Project in there. and yeah, It's going to be a great little section, so a new expansion to the museum this month. Cool. Yeah, lots of stuff. When are you going to come up again, Bobes? You haven't been up for a while. Um, I'm not doing. I'm not doing any appearances. Just I'm doing the hyperbaric chamber treatment down here in LA for. I got that going on for the next while, and then just doing taxes. And then I got uh, editing stuff to do for those documentaries, and then we got a couple other documentaries in the works. I got to do work on those. So I'll be. I'll be pretty busy. Well, hopefully we can get you up here by summer or something like that. It'd be nice to have you. Uh, I'll be. Up, I'll be up there. Cool, cool. Well, you know you have a place to stay, not only because I, I have a house, but also we have your trailer in the outbuilding. Oh, yeah. I got to talk to Powell, see if he wants – I want to sell that thing. I was going to see if he wanted to – I'd pay him to fix it up and then give him the glue when we sell it. Oh, well, you know, you have a platform, and there might even be somebody listening to it right now. So if you want to buy Bobo's trailer, maybe uh, reach out to uh, Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast at gmail.com and make an offer. It's the smallest trailer that – Still has a dedicated queen size bed and a four person dining table. You know, you could just turn it into an Airbnb of some sort. No, you really could. People would love to stay in Bobo's trailer. I'll give you a bunch of casts for it or something, a bunch of Bigfoot books. You could park it right behind the NABC. <laughs> no, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the thought, but no, I don't think so. I don't think so. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> oh, gosh. You okay? <laughs> cut that out, Pruitt. Don't cut it out, Pruitt. Well, Bobo, this is uh, our favorite episode of the month, the Q&A session today. So why don't we jump into that and we can start with a question. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the first question, if you don't mind. Um, the first question today comes from Jason Burton. And the question is, do you know of Bigfoot researchers who believe in Bigfoot, but think the Patterson-Gimlin film is a hoax? There's a couple. Yeah, I, I know a couple that maybe don't think it's a hoax, but aren't so sure it's real. Right. Yeah, I don't know if we should give the names out, though. That might be inappropriate. You don't want to publicly shame them? No, no. And, and, and you know, and, uh, this might be a good time to say it's appropriate to be skeptical about anything, especially the things that everybody assumes are real. Um, and, you know, like Patterson-Gimlin film, everybody takes that one to the bank pretty much, or almost everybody who thinks Bigfoots are real takes it to the bank. But it is appropriate to be skeptical of things that everybody thinks is true. Well, one thing is that there, there's a there's a wider variability. I mean, there's such different looks to different Sasquatches. I think there's not like a homogenous look that I know people that have seen them that say the PG film, I don't think it's real because it doesn't look anything like what I saw. 
I've heard that same thing from witnesses. Um, but that just shows that people don't really understand genetic diversity. You know, because frankly, I don't look much like you. You're much better looking than I am. True. But we're the same species, arguably. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, you take some giant Viking, six foot ten, redheaded dude from Norway, and then you compare him to an African pygmy, they're gonna look pretty different. But they're the same species. Exactly. Yep. It's just genetic diversity. And Sasquatches would be the same thing. Um, people say, oh, I don't think the PG film is real because the one I saw was all skinny. It was very, very thin and lanky. So, like, well, so what? So what? But, you know, when you look at the evidence, and I, I'd like to bring everybody back to the evidence whenever possible, um, the things that were visible in the film, the the stuff that Bill Munns uncovered, not only about the, the anatomy and shape and, and you know, the, all that stuff, but his knowledge of costumes and what was possible in 1967, his knowledge of the film itself, like the actual physical film that the images were imprinted on, you know, or, or whatever the word would be. Um, th th that's all different forms of evidence. And you can read about a lot of this stuff on uh, the RHI, the Relict Hominoid Inquiry um, at, IS, uh, at in, uh, Idaho State University's website. Um, and then, you know, you go to the footprints. People overlook the footprints as evidence for the PG film being real as well. Um, and the footprint casts alone are enough to convince me they're real. Of course, that's kind of my area of focus, and I know a lot about that stuff. But people like Bill Munns, who know a lot about, uh, who know a ton about uh, creature costumes, that convinced him. So you kind of have to look at it from your own area of expertise. But just seeing a Bigfoot and thinking, oh, mine was shorter or different color or skinny, and that one isn't, therefore the film's not real, that's not a very you know sound statement, I think. Right. I think it's the facial differences, too, that throw a lot of people off. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be true. Yeah, the, what, what they see doesn't convince them. It's like, well, I don't know, man. Like, look at look at all this is this is another one of those examples where um it's kind of like that question what's the best piece of evidence for bigfoot well it's not it, it's hard to say that but when you stand back and look how all the various pieces of evidence fit together like a puzzle it's unquestionable that bigfoots are real i think at least you know that can completely convince me there's no question that they're there they're real the question is what are they yeah yeah well, i've got a lot of questions what are they is a cool one how they live i want to know the hows yeah yeah, I think anybody who's familiar with with the evidence or a vast section of it is probably beyond the if they're real part. Now we want to move on to how they're like. How do they live? What do they do? Where do they go? Right now it's January. The snow lines at you know twenty five hundred feet. What elevation do they hang out right now? You know, that's what I want. Right. Exactly. Great minds think alike, Cliff. That's why you and I do a podcast together. <laughs> Maria N. Question. Do you believe that people who have encounters tend to have additional encounters? And is it because they are more open-minded or do they have something that is drawn to them or they are drawn to? That's a good one. I, I just had this talk last night with uh, Sam Kitchen. We were talking about this kind of thing. And the skeptics say, well, these people that have multiple encounters, especially like that have multiple ET encounters, multiple Bigfoot encounters, multiple you know ghost encounters. The people that are in the woo community, for lack of a better word, like to them, that proves that it's more substantial, that it's all real. But to the skeptic, it's like, well, that's just a personality defect or they're a person prone to fantasy and, you know, self delusion and that's that sort of thing. But it does seem like there's people that attract that sort of thing. But I think a lot of it's just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, um, and there is a certain thing. I, I do agree with the skeptics on some 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 level there, I think, that right. I think some people who are prone to think they saw Sasquatches are prone to think they saw the, them again, whether or not that's true. 
I mean, there right. is something to that. I think that that's undeniable, no matter what, what your position on Bigfoots might be. Um, but I think that you're you're largely right there. The people who are in the right kinds of places tend to see them more. And frankly, it has a lot to do with luck as well. You know, yeah. I think a really good example would be, um, let's take mountain lions, for example. Um, there, there are people who live in the woods not far from me that have never seen a mountain lion. And I've, I somehow have seen seven to this date. You know, does that mean that I'm more prone to see mountain lions? Or does that mean that, um, you know, mountain lions are attracted to me? I don't think so. I hope not. I don't want mountain lions to be attracted to me. Um, but uh, I think it's just part of it is luck and part of it is being in the right kinds of places. I know an excellent witness that has uh, somehow managed to have four good observations of Sasquatches in his lifetime. First one, he's 17, and he's in his late 60s right now. Four is a pretty good number for a life, right? For Bigfoot? Oh, yeah. Pretty good. But you look at Roger Patterson. Roger Patterson dumped his life into Bigfoot from you know the early 60s until he died in the early 70s, 10 years, and he saw one, which is also a pretty good number, I would say, for 10 years of work. Um, but if wouldn't he be more prone to see more Bigfoots if this idea of being a Bigfoot magnet was true? Right. Yeah, I agree with the skeptics on a lot of those points. And I mean, I think there are people that do attract weird stuff, but I think a lot of those, there's a lot of people that claim to be in that same camp that aren't. Yeah. Well, you know what? Upon reflection, that that gentleman I was talking about, who was in his you know mid late sixties, who had seen him four times, three of those observations were in the last five or six years, and within two miles of his house. Wow. He lives in the zone. Is the point? You know. And if you live in a place where there's a group of Sasquatches walking around, you're probably going to hear them. Sometimes you're probably you're probably going to find some tra- trace of them if you know what to look for. You might even see a couple of them. Um, it's, it's, if you're living in a place where they're frequenting and they are often inhabiting, then you have a much higher chance of seeing one of these things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that has a lot to do with the right place, right time. I don't necessarily think people are Bigfoot magnets. Um, I don't think that it has to do with uh, ethnicity or background. I think it has a, uh, more, more to do with where you are. I think people can be Bigfoot magnets with the group of Bigfoots that they're familiar with. You know, like, certain woman that goes out and sings and feeds them or, you know, they'll be attracted to that person, but it's not like yeah. a, not like a hidden quality that they, you know, telepathically seek out or whatever. I think it's just, they get a good vibe and you're not threat and you're cool with them. They, they might come out, you know, if, especially if you're feeding them that you can definitely attract them in to be attracted to you. Yeah, it goes back to what Dennis Full, a previous guest on Bigfoot and Beyond here, um, said. uh, One of the most concise, intelligent quotes about Bigfoot you can find anywhere. And he said something more or less like, you need to become a predictable feature in their environment. And if you can do that, if you're that that lady out there singing or leaving food out for them or going for a walk at a certain time of day in the same path all the time, then you are that predictable feature. And, um, you know, you change that pattern or you do something weird or maybe they just let their guard down. Maybe they're used to you. Then the other, I think you have a pretty decent chance. So it has more to do with, I think, what you're doing and where you're doing it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this other guy, he saw he had a very – two of his sightings actually were within 10 yards. The, the location was within 10 yards of one another on the same stretch of their road crossings. Oh, um, that guy. Yeah, one was in the afternoon and the daylight. He saw it real well. The other one was at night, about twelve thirty or one from in the morning, if I remember right. Same spot on the road, within ten or twenty yards. Same spot on the road, two years apart. So that what we see there is the habit of the human 
overlapping with the habit of the Sasquatches in the area. Yeah, that's what it takes. Yeah, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it there. Well, hey, we got a we got a question here from Daniel Perez, friend of the show. He's been a guest before, um, personal friend of ours as well. Daniel Perez asks, "What would you do if you saw one that stepped from the backside of a tree and you were only two feet in front of it and it just stood there, shy of eight feet tall? Take a picture, soil your pants, shoot at it, faint, never tell anybody what happened if you did faint. What would you do, Bobs?" All of those, just not in that order. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I know what I, I I've never, I've never had that exact scenario happen, but I know you'd probably, you'd probably freeze. Whoever you are, you'd probably just freeze. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be overwhelming. Actually, um, if anything, I mean, anything stepped out of a tree two or three feet in front of you when you weren't expecting it. Anything. If you stepped out from behind a tree and I wasn't expecting it in the woods, it would scare the hell out of me. Right. But let alone yeah. something eight feet tall right there, you could probably smell it. You could probably feel its warmth because it's a mass and it'd be it'd be a really, really intense situation. But what what would you think you would do? I've been in situations with great whites where you're like right there with them. You can think of all the stuff to whatever you're gonna do, but I just froze every time until like I thought I could start moving again. Yeah, I, I guess that's what you know. That's what they do too. Sometimes, isn't that interesting? Yeah, you know, this question. The newest Sasquatch Chronicles Wes's new guest was a great one. It's a members only one, but this guy had one walk up. It uh, jumped out of him six feet in front of him on a trail in Louisiana back in 1980. He was 18 years old, and this thing jumped out in front of him and just had like that impish, wicked kind of haha, I got you kind of look, like bemused look. And then it put its arms back and stuck out its chest and started going, ooh, 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 like working itself up. They said it was getting like into a bloodlust. It was six feet in front of him. He had like a, uh, it said a large caliber hang on like a 44 or something. And he sh- raised his arm, shot it point blank in the chest. And uh, he basically killed it. His story was he just very slowly raised the gun up and shot it from you know, three feet, the gun was only three feet from the chest when he fired. And listen to that guy's story. I think a lot of people would have the same kind of reaction, just freeze. And then, uh, you know, maybe if you had a gun, raise it up and fire. Or a camera? Seems like no one ever does that. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this question as you're speaking. And I think that there there's actually several questions here. It's like, what, what would you think you would do? What would you wish you would do? And what might actually end up happening. Because um, yeah, I would like to think, oh, I would uh, take a picture of it. I would um, I would reach out and grab some fur from its chest and pull real hard, get some samples. I would uh, um, stare at its eyes and, and absorb the moment for as long as I could. Those are the things I wish I would do. <laughs> but in all honesty, man, if it took me by surprise, and stuff, I, I would probably freeze and just try to process it. Just yeah. try to process. Just processing that would probably take all the RAM I have in my brain. First, you know, overload it, it. Oh yeah, I think I think back to that time when uh, when I, I ran across one of these things. I didn't see it, man, but something big was there breaking branch, breaking trees at Notice Creek, um, the Notice Creek Landing. I think back at that thing. I had a camera in my hand, and the thing was, I mean, not that far away. It was on the other side of Notice Creek, and I was on the landing up there, you know, the spot pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't that far away. I had a camera in my hand and I didn't do anything about it, but that was way back in the day, of course. 
Um, but before that, I would have said, oh, I would just run down in the woods and take a picture. That's not what happened. So it's, it's really hard to say what you would do. I know what I would like to do. Um, I know what I wish I would do or wish I would have done in that case, but wish I would do next time. But th- there's just no telling what you're actually going to do until you're in that situation. You can say what you're going to do, but yeah, until it happens, I think the vast, vast majority of people just freeze. Yeah, they're trying to figure out what it is, what, what that thing is. I, I know a guy who actually um, who saw one within you know five feet of him. He's walking on a tree. He thought it was a tree at first, actually. He turned to the side and said, that's a weird-looking tree with like little tufts of moss or whatever coming out of it. It wasn't a tree. It was this like, old, wrinkled-up, thick skin with tufts of hair coming out of it. Um, and uh, he like looked up this thing, and he saw a face looking back to him. He, again, he thought it was a big Doug fur or something at first. But he looked back, looked up, and there was a big face looking at him, the big square face with human eyes, he said. And um, he screamed. And then it screamed as it turned away and walked into the woods. And he just flipped out. And then the people he was with behind him, he they also saw it as well. Um, real interesting encounter. Um, that's the same one where the, the thing's eyes turned red uh, at the same time. And there's a pretty good observation of one of these red eye things. And kind of was gets, that on Hood? Perplexed. What was that? Was that on Hood? No, that was up by um, by those by uh, Lake Merwin mm. in Washington. Yeah. Um, yeah, up there. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, and, and little side note there. When I talked to the guy and he told me that he screamed and then it screamed, um, he says, "I don't know if it was imitating me or what." And I, I thought, how interesting is that? Because we just had that conversation recently on another podcast about how when I hear a sound, I sometimes just automatically imitate it because I think it's cool. Right? Uh, maybe not a cool thing to do. You know, like chicks won't dig me. Not that kind of cool, but like it's just I think it's fun. So, so I think that. That's interesting that if they are these parrots, you know, imitating the sounds around them, that maybe that's what it was doing there. But it's an interesting side note anyway on a tangent there. I never heard someone say that. Like they, they screamed and the thing screamed. They thought it was an imitation. I've never heard that. Yeah, he didn't say he, – he did say I, if it was an imitation. He said it sounded like me. Um, he, If I remember right, he said I screamed and it screamed. And he said I don't know if it was imitating me or if it was just scared or if it was just making noise. And I thought, oh, how what an interesting guess. What an interesting possibility that it, it did that, you know, that it might have been imitating the sound that this gentleman made. That's something to think about. I mean, it, that could be the case, and that's very interesting. I'm going to keep that in mind when I hear anything similar in the future. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Give us the next question. Doug McIntosh. Question. Was just wondering if Patty was ever seen by any witnesses after the PGF. Is there any chance that she could still be alive today? I guess there's a chance, but a very remote one. I mean, that put her at like 70 years old or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know because she was obvious. She was sexually mature. We know that because she has breasts, right? So if if ape, just a little speculation here. If apes mature at about ten years, ten years of age, so she, in that case, she had to be born at least you know nineteen fifty five, nineteen you know fifties, you know fifty seven, somewhere in there, probably ten or twelve years old by the time the film happened. I don't know. She'd be like seventy now. That's yeah. pretty un- unlikely. Um, apes in general, and, and this includes humans. You know, we're, we're all the same family here. Um, wild apes, apes in the wilds, and including humans, tend to live about you know fifty years, a little less, somewhere in there in the wild. 
40, 50 years. They can live longer in, 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 in captivity or domestication because of medicine and whatever else. You know, they can live a little bit longer than that. And of course, there's the idea that uh, that uh, larger – there's a name for this. I, got, I talk about it all the time. I need to look it up. There's, an, there's this idea in biology that larger animals tend to live longer than shorter ones. It's not true within like dog breeds or something, but like in cetaceans, it's true. Like whales oh, yeah. live longer than dolphins, right? Like 200 um, plus years. Yeah, yeah. There's some right whales out there that are 250 years old or more. You know, so the the bigger the animal is, sometimes the longer they tend to live, and that might be true for Bigfoots as well. So give them a, a natural lifespan of 50, 60 years. Dentals would, would kill them, probably. Yeah, you're right, Bobo. The dental death, like they get some sort of uh, tooth abscess or decay or infection, and it goes into their brain and it kills them, or they starve to death because it's too painful to eat. Um, that's what happens to a lot of apes and big animal elephants. That's very common death for elephants, for example, you know, and, and, and probably well, maybe not humans because we have a society that would take care of each other and whatnot. There are examples of Neanderthal skulls, for example, that, uh, they're missing their teeth. Um, and I guess that paleoanthropologists can tell whether they lost their teeth naturally or not. But, um, apparently some Neanderthals were known to be of advanced age and had been missing their teeth upon death. And they had been kept alive probably by their you know, their, their tribe or whatever you call Neanderthals, groups of Neanderthals. Makes sense. Um, but specifically, Patty, I know her, no more footprints from her were ever found. And Ah, I, that is no longer true, by the way. Really? I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. It, very interesting. Um, for a long time, even in my presentations, I would say, yeah, after after Patty watched Roger and Bob cast her footprints from up on that on the ridge there, because that's where Titmus cast uh, Titmus tracked her to, um, and they and she watched Roger and Bob cast her prints. I I was for years saying, and her prints were never found again. Apparently, they were. Um, Doctor Meldrum shared with me a photograph of a footprint from the Bluff Creek area from 1968, and I I am saying that is Patty. I am saying that that footprint is Patty because Patty has a very distinct foot shape, as most Sasquatches do, and and that is Patty. Very, very interesting. We don't know a lot of information about it, but he got a, a picture from a Forest Service worker, if I remember right, from uh, the late 60s, 1968, 69. So I think it was 68. I have to go back. Where was it? Then. It was like Bluff Creek. They didn't say where in Bluff? No, no. That's not a lot of information came with it, unfortunately. Um you know, I, always, I wrote a short story back in college about Patty, like because you know how squatches like to watch TV. Yeah, when they found out when they <laughs> found out she was uh, like their other Bigfoots were watching TV through people's windows out in the woods. When they saw that Patty got filmed, they put together a council and executed her, and they made it. If you were, it was a death sentence. If you were filmed as a Bigfoot, you were automatically put to death because you were a weak link. <laughs> so you wrote the story for what? Uh, like a creative writing class in college. And, and what grade did you get? Probably an A. Probably an A. Knowing me, probably an A. Yeah. That sounds like a good premise. Oh, by, by the way, while you were speaking, I was listening. Don't get me wrong. But I did look up uh, my the information on that footprint. Um, it was uh, this biology teacher, retired biology teacher, shared this with Dr. Meldrum, who shared it with me. Um he said one of his teaching colleagues is a U- U.S. Forest Service ranger back in the 60s and gave him a picture of a footprint from um, taken near Bluff Creek. So that's the information I have in 1969. It, it is Patty. If you saw this, you go, oh, that's clearly Patty. So I- I'm saying that that is Patty and doesn't mean that what I'm saying is absolutely correct, but it would be hard, hard to argue with this one. It, it looks so much like Patty's foot. So 1969, Patty was around Bluff Creek. So we That's have that cool. now. 
Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. Here I was thinking she got murdered by the other Bigfoots. Yeah. That's good to know that your story was not, um, you know, some sort of indication of their actual society. Okay. <laughs> if I may, what also is cool is that I was wrong. And I want, again, I, I do this often publicly. It is important to be wrong because you can change what you're saying and thinking and then try to get closer to the truth. It's okay to be wrong, Bigfooters. Listen to that. Take it to heart. It is not only okay to be wrong, it is actually sometimes good to be wrong because it gets you closer to the truth. Yep. Next question from Jeremiah Byron. Is there a Squatch legend or historical story like Ape Canyon that you feel needs more Bigfoot researchers and authors focusing on it? Yeah, there's the Chetco Indian Devil Massacre. Well, yeah, so hopefully somebody will look into that soon. You know, I think any of these stories always deserve a deeper dive. Yeah, Port Whitlock, the one up in Alaska, I like that people are digging into that one. Yeah, you know, I was I was uh, digging pretty deep into Bosberg this past year, and that was back in 69 through 71 when all that stuff was going. Some of it was shenanigans. And I contacted some of the people who um, were involved, and I, one person said, don't even bother. It's all fake. Ivan Marks is involved. Well, right. what kind of investigation is that? And, and you know what? So far, I mean, again, I haven't got to the bottom of it. It's all snowed in up there in, in Spokane area in Bosburg. I'm not going to head up there anytime soon because I don't like to drive in the snow. But even through my, you know, a month or so investigation, what I came up with was uh, two footprints that had never been, you know, cataloged properly. Um, there is an, uh, and, and some positives too, like this gentleman, the, um, John Susamil was his name. He was the, uh, the border patrol agent that found and cast footprints separately from Ivan Marks and Rene de Hinden and everybody else that was there, the circus that was going on at the time. He found footprints on the other side of Lake Roosevelt, which of course is the Columbia River. Um, they found footprints on the other side on private logging land and cast them. And I, I, I have not yet put my eyes on the originals, but I do know where the originals are. I just haven't been able to connect with the guy who has them. But I did connect with his other son, and he had positives where he, the, his father took the original cast and pressed them in the plaster to make what the impressions would look like in the ground. And I have those in my garage right now, and um, I got to return them, of course, to the Susamil family, their, their legacy, and I think that's cool. But he allowed me to copy them and display them in the North American Bigfoot Center here, one of our new – I mentioned the new areas. That's one of the things that's going to go up in there. Um, and through that, and through cooperation of Todd Prescott, who shared some pictures from the John Green archives with me, it turns out that there's another cast from the Bossberg uh, um, stuff that apparently Krantz took – you know, everybody's real familiar with that picture of uh, Grover Krantz, uh, you know, kneeling down or, you know, squatting in the snow and looking at a footprint in the ground. That print was cast and there's a copy of it. Um, I have a copy and Dr. Meldrum has a copy. So I, I think about the researcher who told me, oh, don't bother looking into that. There's nothing else to learn. It's all been documented. Renee did a good job and it's all fake anyway because Ivan Marks. I'm not so sure. I, I don't think that's a good attitude, honestly. Um, and on top of that, there is there, there's footage from Bosberg. And I don't mean, yeah, everybody knows about the fake Cripplefoot stuff that Ivan Marks did, right? Um, and Peter Byrne busted that great work on his part, et cetera. But there's other footage. There's actually footage of the handprints in the ground that uh, had never been surfaced, had, had never surfaced before. And some of those handprints are actually knuckle prints. There were knuckle prints there. Most historical situations, whether it's the PG film or Bosberg or, or the, the Chetco Devil Massacre stuff, all this stuff can always be looked at more deeply and, and with more scrutiny and more can be uncovered. Here, here. 
Yeah, I get all fired up when somebody tells me not to do something, but I, I, I dig in a little bit and there's like, oh yeah, there's all this stuff that no one's ever talked about. How cool is that? No so one tells know. me what to do, not even me. <laughs> yeah, the last person I'm going to listen to is me. David Gaston, question. Do you think that the government considers Bigfoot disclosure in the same way as UFO alien disclosure, and that such an admission would lead to an abdication of religion, social chaos, or disruption to forestry and park visitation? I think the disruption of forestry and park visitation is probably part of it, but it's a whole different thing than UFO alien. I mean, that's they're not going to shut down the forest or close off a mining claim because of a UFO, but Bigfoot they could. Yeah, I think I mean this is the government, so you know all they really care about is the economy, right? And it, yeah, and it wouldn't and, it wouldn't even cause that big. I mean, look what UFOs, how big a stir that caused? Not that much, really. Oh, I know. Yeah, and, and how disappointing that was. I'm just so disappointed in humans in general because of that. It's like, yeah, UFOs are real and nobody cares. Come on, it's ridiculous. But you know, UFOs don't have a direct um, economic impact for the most part. No. I mean, there's some national defense stuff, which is of course mostly about the economy as well. Um, but uh, the, the Sasquatches would have a direct economic impact, and I think that's a concern for them. Yeah. Yeah. Look sure. at the spotted owl and all that stuff. You know. Yeah. Kind of shut down most of the line, the the logging in the Pacific Northwest, and that really isn't the same even today as it was before the spotted owl stuff happened in the nineties. Well, they couldn't cut it that rate, anyways. Yeah, but something like a Sasquatch is a different level, you know. Oh, a bird, for sure. You know? I, and don't get me wrong; I, I, I'm, I am an environmentalist. You know, I think the environment's important. You know, and because that's where we live, we're the only animals that poop in our own bed, expected not to smell. You know, but uh, Sasquatches would be a whole different, whole different ball game. No, that, that, I, don't, I don't think that there's any uh, social chaos. They're already real. It's, just, huh. it's not going to change anything at the end of the day. Again, no, you, you have to look at disruption to big corporate, you know, income. Essentially, is what it comes down to. I think. I agree with that one hundred percent. Yeah, and of course, it'll affect a lot of people because people work for those corporations, you know, and a lot of people will be out of work. But again, you know, logging is a big industry, of course, but it's not what it w- once was. No, especially in the south, where they got those big bunching machines, like you know, like it's all automated. There's not even loggers; there's just guys driving those harvesting those big harvesters. Oh yeah, I I, they, I watched some guy uh, logging this big patch of land up in um, outside of Ames, Oregon, uh, not that long ago. It's like one guy in some big excavator-looking monstrosity. You know, the pick a tree, cut it off, move it over to the piles. Like, man, just unbelievable the efficiency of that one machine. You don't need a whole logging crew anymore with chainsaws. You need this one dude in some like two hundred thousand dollar machine doing the work of thirty, forty, fifty guys. Dude's just, dude, we just work, well, if you're cutting timber now, you're in some really steep stuff where those things can't get into. Yeah, I suppose that'd be true, right? Yeah. Yeah. But not, yeah, I don't, I mean, the, the parameters of the question here, you know, religion, social chaos, or disruption of forestry and parks visitation. So, I mean, I think it's a, a larger economic issue. Disruption to the economy, well, then, then you hit them where it hurts. Right. That's what they seem to care about. You know, they worship the, the dollar. That's their, that's their religion. So that's, that's what they're concerned about. They're worried about their religion being disrupted. Amen. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Next question here comes from James Kelly. Why did Moneymaker name the show Finding Bigfoot <laughs> instead of Searching for Bigfoot? 
I firmly believe if Moneymaker had named the show Searching for Bigfoot instead of Finding Bigfoot, it would still be on the air today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, James, you vastly overestimate us. We had nothing to do with that. We had nothing to do with the naming of the show or when it airs or anything like that. Nothing at all. Um, that's all. That's way above our pay grade, I'll tell you that. Um, all that stuff is done in the boardrooms of Animal Planet or Discovery Networks or you know that, that, that level of stuff. Some corporate folks in Manhattan somewhere getting together and talking about you know, whatever focus groups talk about and all that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, we that we had nothing to do with that. Um, yeah, we had some control later, and we not control. We had a lot of influence as the show went on because the production realized that they couldn't make a good real show without real bigfooters giving input. So we did have a lot of influence, probably a lot more than pretty much any other show. And certainly that's what the producers tell us. I mean, we only have worked on that one series, so we don't have a ton of experience. But all of our producers have worked on a number of series before, and they all kind of walked away saying, "Yeah, this show's special." Um, it's it's real. It's more real than any other TV show they've worked on, and we have a lot more influence, and we have a lot more say, and uh, we help a lot more, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so our show is special in a lot of ways, but we had no control over things like when it aired or what the name of the show would be or anything like that. So no, yeah, I hated the name Finding Bigfoot. I was like, what are you naming that for? It's setting up a but looking for Bigfoot or searching for Bigfoot or just finding Bigfoot. I just hated that name and. I just, I just got used to it, I guess. Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, these guys are, you know, that, like I said, the, that decision was almost certainly made in, you know, either Manhattan or, you know, the, at the Animal Planet headquarters or the Discovery headquarters and wherever that was at the time, whatever Springs, Maryland, I can't remember the name of the place. Silver. Uh, Silver Springs, Maryland. Um, so that decision was certainly made there. I, I, I didn't think it was a great name either, but I don't know. At the end of the day, I thought it was a pretty good show. So I think, hopefully I think, people focus on that. I think it was some hack stand-up comedian that was looking for easy fodder, came up with the name. <laughs> I'm not sure Animal Planet would listen to them. Well, it sounds like they did. Yeah. Fine. I, I so guess many terrible j- I mean, how many lame comedians have you heard on Comedy Channel on satellite tell a Finding Bigfoot joke? Finding oh, I Bigfoot. still see it all the time, like not Finding Bigfoot. Like, like really, do you, do you think that after all these years that's original in any sense of the word? I know. And then on top of it, I, I get a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I get some, you know, when I get hate mail and stuff like that, which still happens. I don't know why I, people care about what I'm doing right now, but um, I still get some hate mail sometimes or snarky people online who have nothing better to do or something. Um, and they think that they're stabbing me in the heart by saying, your show, not finding Bigfoot. So like, okay, you're kind of <clears> just showing me your, your, you know, how clever you are, um, which isn't very. Um, and, and also, what are you trying really, what kind of person are you to try to hurt somebody else by attacking something that I had nothing to do with? <laughs> it, it's kind of sad. It just shows like the juvenile level of uh, a lot of people, unfortunately. But whatever, whatever, man. I thought the show was fun. It was great. It taught me a lot about Sasquatch. It's a wonderful opportunity. Traveling the world with some of my friends. It, it was rad. Loved yeah. it. Loved it. No regrets whatsoever. All right. So All right. Well, the next question is from Pat Morgan. I'm sure you guys have made countless sacrifices in your lives in the pursuit of Sasquatch. What do you see as some of the defining moments or decisions in your life that drove you to make a career of studying Sasquatches? Skateboarding without a helmet. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Let's see. Defining moments. Uh, I guess uh, 
I, there was no defining moment. I just always knew I was going to go look. Well, I, like, like, I don't know, Bob. I know your story pretty well. I guess moving to humble would be a moment for you, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I'm trying to think sacrifices. And certainly I've, I've sacrificed some things, lost some people, lost some friends, lost some this and that's and stuff. Um, but, you know, had I known back in the day, like walking into the Cal State Long Beach Library and picking up that book, that would have changed the rest of my life. You know, See, that, I, that's, I, that's a clear one for you. As soon as that question came in, the first thing I thought was Cliff getting that book at his break at Long Beach State. I thought that's, yeah. For yeah, me, and, I guess filling out the application to Humble, I guess, was the biggest change. Yeah. And I, and of course, my move, I bounced all over the place for a couple of years, of course, but I ended up in Portland um, or thereabouts. You know, I live out in Sandy now, but uh, moving, of course, is a big thing. Because if you move where you live, that changes everything. Changes yeah. your friends and your your access to family, and maybe maybe it improves it, maybe it, it doesn't. Um, I moved away from my family for the Sasquatch thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of defining moments, I guess. I still remember the call with Todd Miller saying, "Yeah, we're going to be looking for Bigfoots and land, sea, and air, and blah 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 network stuff, TV. You want to do this?" They say, like, "Well, I had I known what that <laughs> telephone call meant to my future, I would have uh, taken a moment to take a deep breath and look at it more." Huh. poignantly so been a lot of things really you know I, I met you for example um i was teaching in southern california in a little community called hawaiian gardens and i um i took time off because i was thinking about moving somewhere so i went up to interview at a in humboldt at a school district up there and that's when i was on that uh the bfro trip with you and bart and leela and, and, and chris and all sorts of people were there like a lot of these uh, brandon a lot of these people are still my friends um, still talk to on a regular basis. That was a pretty uh, seminal moment in my life as well. Right. Yeah, for sure. I remember, that. I remember when you were, because you were, uh, you were somewhere between Arcadia, Eureka, somewhere like in one of those little school districts. I'm like, talk to my friend up in Hoopa School District. You could go live up in Hoopa. You'd be dialed in for sure. <laughs> and you went to Portland. Yeah. Well, you know, a little bit more central because I wanted access to BC if I needed it and Northern California. Right. Yeah. So wrong. Gaia, question. If you were able to create a show similar to Finding Bigfoot, would you include a very tough skeptic like Renee? If yes, who would you be who would be your choice to be the tough skeptic part of the show? Um, I'd probably want someone that's I mean, she was a fisheries biologist. I'd probably want like a PhD in primatology or anthropology. Yeah, I think that'd be suitable. And Renee was good for what she did, but um I also don't really picture her as a tough skeptic. Right. Yeah, she's skeptical, but she wasn't tough in the way that um, like she never called. To my knowledge, I, I, she never called, or maybe she, she called very few of our witnesses liars, especially to their face. She never said, "No, that's not true." Um, and I think that would be a, a more tough skeptic. But Renee's Renee's a kind woman. She wouldn't do that to somebody. Um, she's Midwest polite. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's very polite, and she cares about people, and she loves to be around people, and and she made friends with a lot of people. The witnesses she's the one, on the show. She's the one. She, 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 like moneymaker's not worried about hurting someone's feelings. Renee was. Yeah, yeah. She's was perhaps. I'm not going to say too kind for the gig because she played her role very well, and she, and a lot of people really like her. So, that, but um, I think it would be fun uh, on a new show, like say a different show that had a different chemistry of people or whatever, to have a um, to somebody who's willing to say. Pshaw, hogwash, right. you know, and just be done. It's like, no, that's not. And, and then I, I think that would be kind of fun. Um, but who would that person be is a good question. 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of coming up with this ideal person that would be an expert on film and photography, you know, like for analyzing film, but also be like a PhD primatologist. Yeah, or 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 almost like PhDs would be ideal, but it's not necessary because you know right. you know how I keep thinking of it is Darren Nash, right? Yeah. Um, now, Bubba, you weren't you weren't here when we when I interviewed Darren because you were working, if I remember right. Um, but I don't know if you ever listened to that podcast. But Darren Nash is a skeptic. He's I, I believe I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I believe that he's more open to the Bigfoot thing than a lot of other cryptids because he feels it's better supported by the evidence. But he's still not convinced they're real. I think somebody like that would be very interesting because he he's very knowledgeable in the subject. Um, he's written a book about uh, about his skeptical views on cryptids in in particular. Um, uh, you know, I, I think someone like that who's a, really well acquainted with the subject, very well read on it is open but not convinced and doesn't give a darn about what people think of them and just say, nope, you're a liar right. if, that, if they think that's true. But then, yeah, the need of that whole thing about you could call a lot of people liars that aren't lying. Yeah, that would, it would end up burning a lot of bridges and hurting people. But then again, you know, then that would, thinking from a TV perspective, that would give like somebody like you or me or an opportunity to step in and say, no, you're being unduly harsh because of this. Right. We would have a lot less witnesses stepping forward though also. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of considerations here that uh, that's we what the show. Pulled. That's the producers are worried about that. Like, so was I. Like, if we call someone a liar, and then you know, someone someone at home, it's like, well, they're going to call me a liar on national TV. Like, oh, I was really pissed. We did the Hawaii episode. God, I forgot his name right now, but we were over on the Big Island. My buddy took. Uh, he did the one about finding the Menahuti footprints out pig hunting. And then the guy, the Hawaiian guy's nephew, the Hawaiian guy couldn't make it, but his nephew was there and he was just standing in for the recreation and they didn't tell Moneymaker that he was not the actual witness. He was just, you know, the guy's nephew filling in for the recreation. And then they didn't, they kind of set the interview up like he was the witness. So when Matt questioned him, he, you know, didn't know the answers and he looked like he was, you know, like a dumb liar and Matt had no clue what was going on. And they thought, oh, that's great TV. So they let it slide. But, you know, we ended up calling the poor guy a liar on national TV, making him look bad when he was just trying to help us out. Yeah, a little bit more transparency. Or maybe that's not the right word. Maybe better communication in that situation would have been better because Matt is asked some very probing questions. Um, Matt, you know, is really good at figuring out hoaxes. I don't always agree with his assessment, and just need, just like he doesn't always agree with mine. We have differences in opinion sometimes. But I will say he's very good at like sniffing out hoaxes. Right. Um, and he he found that one. He found that to be a hoax because it kind of was in a way. But but that's, that's not the right word for it. He just wasn't the, the actual witness, so he didn't have the answers, unfortunately. Right. So Matt did what he's good at, and unfortunately, the other guy ended up being a victim of that, unfortunately. So. Dude, remember how much we'd laugh? They'd have to, like, cut angles and stuff because Moneymaker would be like, someone would be talking, but Moneymaker would make those faces just, like, just looking with contempt or disgust or anger or whatever, like, looking at that person talking, just making these yeah. faces, and we'd just laugh. Like, just, I just, I blood in my mouth, biting my cheeks and tongue so hard. I love people like that. Actually, I literally do love people. My wife is like that. And my um I, I like being around people who wear their emotions on their sleeve, you know. And yeah. you, there's no doubt. 
you don't, they're just honest people in a way, which in for better or worse, you know, um, like if Matt is, is mad at me, you can tell by looking at him, I can tell yeah. he's mad at me or, you know, yeah. um, then my wife as well for that, for that matter. <laughs> but I kind of appreciate that, that level of honesty, like that they, they can't even hide what they're thinking. Yeah. I, I just love that. And uh, yeah. Matt is very emotive as well. And I, I think he's hilarious because of it. I think he's got, the, he's got the least poker face of anyone I've ever met. Oh, I'd love to play poker with Moneymaker. <laughs> <laughs> we'd clean up. We'd, get we'd totally clean up. <laughs> but you know, I'd like honestly, if we had a finding Bigfoot poker thing, Renee would run the table, man. Yeah, because she she can she can she has that poker face. And yeah, have you ever played pool with her? Oh, she's all focused and oh, she'll let you win the first game, and then she'll put money on it. She's a shark, and she's yeah. good. I remember she was good. Oh yeah, she loves playing pool with people. Yeah, yeah, and like, oh, she'll give you a chance. Like, maybe she wouldn't let you win, but you'll you'd feel pretty good about the first game, and then you start playing her, and she'll just run the table, man. She's got she's got mad skills on the pool table, and yeah. When she offered to bet, I was like, no way, because I know there's no way she'd risk five dollars. There's a chance she'd lose. There's no way she'd risk five bucks. So (laughs) when she wanted to bet, I was like, no way. No, no, yeah, yeah. She she is a really good pool player. So if you ever have a chance to go up against Renee, beware. Have we had Renee on yet? No, no. We uh, we wanted to have her on for the CryptidCon thing to kind of oh, help yeah. push that. But she wore but, um, two masks. She, yeah, well, she couldn't do it, unfortunately. And well, she did the CryptidCon gig, but she couldn't do the podcast. And we we keep she keeps saying she'll come on, but just haven't had a chance to get her on yet. You know, I was listening to that episode with with uh, you guys at CryptidCon. I was like, what is up with Renee's? Like, I can't hear anything she's saying. And they're like, yeah, she had two masks on on the stage. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that didn't translate well. Yeah, the CryptoCon <laughs> episode where Matt, Renee, and I did a Q&A. Uh, Matt and I were maskless, you know, sitting a little distance apart. But Renee was wearing two masks, even though she was on stage. But she's, you know, she's got some concerns, of course. And she's uh, always been kind of a germ- germaphobe in some ways. Oh, stuff, totally. So. Yeah. And it's part of her charm. <laughs> Well, of course, Renee has no poker face. She has two masks on. <laughs> there you go. All right, here's another question for you, Bobes. This question comes from Tyler Snow. When you were filming the show Finding Bigfoot, how did you ensure privacy, like, like there were no locals around the area, during an investigation? Were there ever any instances when you found people were around each around other than the, the investigation team? And if so, did it cause you to end your investigation? Yes, but not often. Very not. As, I expected way more interference. We didn't get much at all. But I mean, it, it definitely happened, and we did run into people we'd be surprised, but not too much. I mean, there's that, that Indiana one or Illinois and Indiana where we had the fake fake uh, camp scene with the with the uh, not oh, mummies, the mannequins, mannequins. Yeah, the couple hike passes. Thought it was like a murder scene. Yeah, you're carrying a mannequin out to the site to set it up. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you're walking out, and these guys are walking back, and they pass you alone on a trail carrying a mannequin out in the middle of the woods, (laughs) stashing a body. They thought I forgot about that, and and, and stashing a fake body on top of it. Just no, no, we are out here hiking. Just my mannequin and me. Uh, good time. But, you know, I remember season two, well, I think we're uh, in Minnesota. Um, I remember the first night investigation. We, we, I think it was one of those times we tried to do it after the town hall. Um, and we went out there and there were people out there. 
Like some, somebody got word of where we're going to be somehow. Maybe we weren't tight-lipped about it or something. Um, and so we ha- we moved spots, but we found that out right then. Like we got to the spot and we heard people messing around in the woods or knocking or something like that. Yeah, and we Louisiana the happened. Move. Yeah, Louisiana, you and Matt and uh, Chad Hamble is on your team, like uh, snuck up on those other team and that other bunch of kids or whatever drinking in the woods there. They, they came out to interfere for sure, but we figured it out. And we just moved. I mean, there was and there was times we like, we'd get to where they well later on the advanced field producers got really good at, at setting up where we could go at night. They got like Natalie and Chad and Melissa like they got really good at that. Um, so, yeah, the longer the show went on, the better our production got at bigfooting. Essentially, yeah, we had a, we had to move like they'd have a, we got permission to go squatching here and there, and we'd get there and be like, we're not squatching here. There's too much chance of interference. We'd you know, find somewhere new, but the last few years we never had to move at all because they'd pick great spots. Yeah. Behind locked gates or on huge tracks of private land where nobody knew it was going to be. And, um, and you know, also in the earlier days, they would permit like one or two places and we had to go one of there because that's where they got permitted. Right. Right. But towards the end, they were permitting five, six, seven different locations sometimes to give us the flexibility of where to choose to go bigfooting. Yeah. And the show got more popular. We had fans that they'd, they'd want to help us. They'd want us to go to their spot. So we got more access that way also. Yeah, private land. Like when we were out with Tom Shea, that was all private land there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it did happen a little bit, but it happened very few times in general and mostly in the beginning seasons. Yeah. When we're, it was still kind of going through a learning process and how to make, you know, Bigfoot TV, not only for the Bigfooters, but for the production as well. And we'd hide, like, if we were out somewhere, like, remote, like, people would pull up going, what's going on here? Like, I'd always hide so they didn't see. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed that stuff. Like, when we're walking around, like, one in the morning and there's a car coming, you know, like, we just immediately run off the road and hide in the brush like Bigfoots themselves. Yeah. And wait for the car to pass. No one ever spotted us. Never once. And we had a team of like four or five, six people. We're wearing backpacks. There's art, there's LED lights, there's all this stuff, cameras, and nobody ever once stopped because they saw us. Nope. I don't know how often you did that, but I bet over the the run of the show, I probably did that five, six times. Oh, more than that. Way more than that. Especially on solos. Oh, yeah. Solos has a whole different thing. So, yeah. Okay. Next question. Oh, last question, Bobes. Go ahead, Bobes. Okay. Question, Barry North. In Tom Powell's book, The Locals, he mentions the story of a forest fire and how a badly burned Sasquatch was rescued. A firefighter told the story anonymously. What are, your, what are your views on this today? My friend, I know two guys that were, my one buddy was a battalion commander for uh, BLM fire. I knew two guys that were on, that was one of the guys was actually his command post is where they were talking about where the tracks were and all that. And he said that was utter and complete BS. There was nothing that that was totally made up, hundred percent. Well, yeah, I don't know much about the background of that. Tom still holds to it. Um, Tom still holds to it. But uh, I, I do. We we both have a friend actually works for the Forest Service, and she uh, I guess looked up this person's name, and they never had a, an employment record with the Forest Service. So there are some indications that perhaps this was not the truth. Yeah, but, um, it, I, I, I believed it when I read it. When I read it, I, it was Battle Mountain. When I, yeah, when Battle I, Mountain Complex, right, right. When I when I read about it, I believed it. But then I happened to run into my buddies that are, you know, they've been in the service since like the '80s, being wild and firefighters. They're way up there now, the chain of command, and they said absolutely did not happen. And these guys are totally they, they're good bros. They would if there was something there, they would let me know. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if it happened or not, but you know what my perspective is on this and a million other things too, like all these like these stories I hear about Mount St. Helens and black helicopters bringing out Bigfoots. And I hear that stuff like once a month because of where I am, you know, we're only about an hour or so from Mount St. Helens. Somebody comes in here once a month and tells me about, oh, my brother, my cousin, my this, my that saw this or heard this or was working. And they have all these conflicting stories that none of the details match at all about black SUVs and helicopters whisking Bigfoots away after the eruption and all this stuff. First of all, I don't believe it because they're all conflicting and they all tell a different story and they can't all be true. Therefore, probably none of them are true. But um, just like the Battle Mountain Complex, at some point you got to go, who cares? Right. If it did real, if it is real, who cares? If it isn't real, who cares? It, nothing came from it. It's just a story. It's just words. There's nothing you can do about it. And right. you know how I'm about stories. Evidence. Is, uh, stories are not evidence. They're stories. That's an entirely different category of stuff. Um, and that's why we, I think that's important for the Bigfoot community to get away from stories a little bit. You know, Try to focus on the actual evidence of Bigfoots instead of the stories thereof. It, so what if a Bigfoot, there's no photographs of it, there's no There's no hair samples, there's no flesh samples, there's no hospital records, there's just a story. So in a way, who cares? It doesn't yeah. matter. You yeah. know, and unfortunately, a lot of the Bigfoot um, legend or mythology, you know, falls into that category. You know, the Albert Osman thing. Um, maybe it shows some behaviors, maybe it doesn't. We don't know if it's real. So in a way, okay, what can we do? You know, what can we do about it? Nothing. Yeah. Man, I love doing these Q and A's. It's always good to answer people's questions because we makes us think and reminds us of things and brings up things that we you know might be in the back of our minds, but these bring it forward. So I like doing these. Yeah, I love doing these, and of course, I, I hope the listeners um, seem they seem to like them. I hope the listeners like them. I get and good if, feedback. Uh, yeah, yeah. And if you're out there listening and you have a question for us, you can uh, let us know. Um, you can email us at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast at gmail.com um, and just put like, the word question or something in the in the subject. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll read your question on the air and answer it. Or maybe not. Or maybe not. Yeah, because we also get a lot of repeat <laughs> questions. I think we must have a lot of new listeners or I don't know, something because we get a lot of repeat questions too, which is fine, yeah. which is fine. I would do the same thing, I think, but. Yeah, so what we, we're trying to do these about once a month or something like that. So if you have questions, go ahead and email us. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us anyway. Let us know what's up. Or you have suggestions for guests. We're always looking for somebody cool. Maybe we want to we talk to those people in the air. Yeah. So we're, we're all ears. Except for me. I'm all mouth, apparently. <laughs> cool. <laughs> all right, Cliff. Well, that was a good one. I'm looking forward to the next one. So until that time, folks, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Um, hit like, hit share. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond.